Most Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Brent Hartley, how are you? I'm so good. So excited good. to have the dream team back together. Even what just posting you? that we were doing this episode, we got a ton of comments and likes just with the anticipation of the four of us getting together again. So I'm super excited for today's episode. So much fun. 100%. So I th yeah, let's just move in because the four, we're going to try to keep this, you know, not six hours long, which the four of us can tend to Sorry. do when we get together. So what we'll try to, what we'll do is just have Jenna and Anthony just briefly introduce themselves and the kind of work that they do. And then we'll move into our topic of today, which is this book right here, Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. So Jenna, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so excited to be here with everyone today. Um, so I am an integral, a professional integral coach. Um, I work with Symmetry Solutions in um, Holiday, Utah, and I work with a lot of people who are redefining their faith and renegotiating their religious relationships. And I work with um, also couples who are working with the relationship fallout of those kinds of um, life experiences. Um, I'm a graduate of the Living School, um, uh, studying under Richard Rohr at the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll just leave it at that. And a wise female goddess. Mm. <laughs> yes. All right, Anthony. Yeah, thanks. My name is Anthony Miller, and uh, I went through my uh, existential dark night of the soul faith crisis uh, six and a half years ago. And um, some people will recognize me from the years that I've presented at uh, Sunstone, including co-presenting with Britt and with Jana uh, at different times, um, as well as uh, I did a Mormon Stories interview uh, with my story in 2019. I've been on Gina Colvin's podcast. Uh, we did an amazing series on the Buddhism for Beginners uh, audiobook. Uh, I think it was a year or two ago. And um, I also, this year, I did a TEDx talk uh, that abbreviated my faith crisis experience and uh, reconstructing and thriving in less than 18 minutes and did that earlier this year. I'm a financial planner. I live in Billings, Montana. I have two grown children. I'm in a mixed faith marriage. And uh, beginning next year, uh, I'm dropping my workload at work to half time so that I can spend more time in this kind of space. And I'm about to launch a new podcast called Life After Deconstruction. Ooh. Which I'm very excited about. And yeah, the four of us kind of get around on all the podcasts and because we just love hanging out in these spaces and talking about things like this. So we're going to jump right in. So this book, we're going to do three episodes on this book because the book is split up into part one, part two, part three. So it just kind of made it easy to split it that way. So today we're really going to be focusing on doubt 
And so we're going to be doing part one, which is the descent into doubt. And what this brings up for me is I always remember the like first canto in Dante's Divine comedy where you know the first lines are something like you know midway on life's journey you find yourself lost in the woods alone and it's kind of this path that a lot of us run into midlife with you know either divorce or faith transition or job or just where you feel like you're not kind of living the authentic life that you maybe would if you were to start the path over and how doubt is kind of a part of this path towards making a change and making a shift. And so the first chapter, there's five chapters, and we're all going to kind of give our thoughts on these or what stood out to us or what reminds us of our story. And so the first chapter is called Doubt as Loss. And what I love about him starting here is that before we get to the later chapters, which talks about doubt as opening up a new, beautiful, shiny path or doubt as change and growth, the first thing you have to do is really sit with the loss, the pain of it. And you can't go on to some of these later places until you really sit with that pain. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Who um, has some thoughts on kind of that place of remembering what would, what it was like to sit with your first doubts really is what you lost. Do you remember what that felt like? Uh, I can jump in quickly first, which is I was excommunicated from my faith about the same time my mom died of cancer. And uh, as I look back over the 10 years, really, of kind of deconstructing my religious system, it was harder than losing my mom. And, and that may sound insensitive or uh, absurd, but it's the truth. It was hard. And... Uh, I lost relationships. I lost friends. I, and it's not just you lose the relationship entirely. You lose what the relationship was. And for anybody out there, and it happens all the time in religious systems, they write off, dismiss the difficulty that a faith crisis is, and they act like it's unreasonable to sh explain your feelings this way. But damn it, it's true. Jenna, you're nodding your head a lot. What what does this bring up for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've experienced it and I've seen it in hundreds of clients at this point, right? So many people feel like this is some sort of choice we made or some sort of failing or some sort of way that we've we brought this on ourselves in some way. And it's such a different, it's, it, it's truly, and I love the way that Brian McLaren talks about this, it's truly a different paradigm. And paradigm shifts are inherently painful. And then what we don't even know and recognize as a paradigm shift, we're trying to relate back to people who are still in a different paradigm. And um, I just think about myself, one of the biggest things that I noticed in my own loss in going through this was feeling the loss of social capital or the good view that other people had of me, which I didn't realize at the time was so keenly tied into the way I saw myself. Um, I was really in a place of needing other people to approve for my own wellness. And I didn't know that. I, I, life was going along and I felt fine because I was getting what I needed. Um, but as that started to shift, it was one of the first more, most poignant losses was um, others' trust and good opinion of me 
in my family and in my um, in my church congregation. Or like your your concept of like I'm good because all these people say that I'm good, and then all of a sudden they're not saying that anymore, and like identity is just. Anthony, what comes up for you? Yeah, so I put a lot of work into my TED Talk because I wanted to express what the experience of an existential faith and identity crisis was. And I had some people give me some feedback and and kind of as a collaboration, I was able to come up with this metaphor uh, or imagery of what it was like. And it included what I'd used as an imagery of a heart and then vines of meaning that grow around your heart and grow into your heart and over time become one with your heart. And I shared in my TED Talk how I had these deep and abiding spiritual experiences where I felt a warmth in my heart and a connection in my soul where I felt an enlightening uh, of, of my thoughts and where I felt a deep sense of intimacy with my community. And as I contemplated scriptures and performed ordinances, what happened over time is these vines of meaning grew around my heart, they encapsulated my heart, and they eventually grew to become one with my heart. They were my identity. They were how I made sense of life. They were my roles, my reputation, my family connections, everything. And the experience for me was when my faith crisis happened, it was as if all of those intertwined vines and layers of meaning around my heart that had grown into and become one with my heart were abruptly and violently ripped from me, leaving my heart a bloody, shredded, tangled mess. And in those moments, uh, adeptly sometimes referred to as the dark night of the soul, um, I not only lost my my beliefs, but I lost my very sense of identity, and I sensed the heavens closing and the God that I had always known not never existing in the first place. You know, notwithstanding my cries out to Him at those times, and um, it's hard to explain that to someone who has an experience, but that that's what I attempted to do is to give someone a glimpse of the identity and existential crisis of having your entire paradigm and sense of being ripped from you. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read one thing from the book that stood out to me. It says, for many of us, faith is our map of reality, our map of the universe. It tells us where we are, where we've been, where we're going, where to turn. But as soon as our trusted map stops matching reality, we feel disoriented. We have no idea where to turn, what to do, or how to survive. And it's this really disorienting feeling and this really deep loneliness. Um, Albert Einstein uses the same language, but not for um, a faith transition, but just for learning paradigm shifting kind of science knowledge. It said it was as if the ground had been pulled out from under me with no firm foundation to be seen anywhere upon which one could have built. And I remember feeling like that, like I just could not find some solid ground to stand on. Um, and that, I mean, it's just really hard and it's a process of grief that we really have to feel the weight of in order to kind of move on to these other places where faith or where doubt begins to open up, you know, new possibilities. We can't skip this part of it's really hard. It's really hard. It's really painful. 
Yeah, I, I was struck if I could say something, Brett. I, I was struck. He talked about the um, that doubt has the same root as duo or double that there's this kind of splitting. We're trying to hold a lot in our in our minds at the same time. And I, I like that he says this because it's not as if people go into this understanding that they're going through a paradigm shift. Like so much of this awareness comes in retrospect or in working with people or talking to people. At the time, we don't know what is happening. We don't even understand the ways that we are fighting with ourselves. Um, you know, if we had a, a, someone who has been down that path to be able to say, hey, you're actually okay. It's amazing how much easier that path becomes. But at first, we don't know this. So one of the th losses he talks about is unity and clarity of mind. Because there is something new that is growing in us. You, we don't really choose our beliefs, right? We, we don't have that power. We think we do. We tell other people they do. But we really don't. Um, and... So as we try to get in alignment with what is coming into our awareness as our reality, I see people all the time being split with, but no, this is what I've learned over my entire life of how to be good. This is what I've learned. And there's this split where we feel like we can't win. How do we decide between our belonging and our authenticity? It's, it's just rips us apart. And, and, you know, even as we're moving and he, overall this book, he talks about this being a staging uh, uh, and not a life staging, but a, a stage of faith kind of uh, a movement that we move through. Whenever we're moving from one paradigm to another or one stage to another or one place to another, it seems to be the way of things. And I've heard Glennon Doyle say it this way. We always know what we're a no to before we know what we're a yes to. <laughs> And just that fact alone, when you're saying no to something and you're actually in a wrestle with it, but it is going to be felt as a loss. Yeah. And our, you, you learn in that space why brains work so hard to keep it black and white and simple. And this is the story and this is the path. And like our brains work really hard to keep all that. And once that kind of shattered to me, it's like, oh, my brain was working really hard to kind of avoid this space because it hurts and it's icky and it's scary. <laughs> and it's like, you realize that, you know, afterwards, why brains really resist, why we have this resistance because it's painful. Bill, you had a thought. I just wanted to say, because I think it needs to be said here at the beginning, is that as I started to read the book, I realized very quickly I could place trust in the author because he had been on the path. Um, he describes it in such a way that you know he's familiar with the territory. And he very quickly showed me that I could lean into this book and experience it. And, and I have my, when you first um, noted this idea of faith after doubt, there's this there's this idea that because I haven't gotten there yet. I've saved uh, the end for when we get there. I have this idea that when we get to the end, there's this possibility he's going to try to walk me back into some sort of belief that I know I can't go back to. But Atheists, call, atheists call it Jesus smuggling. At some point in this yeah. conversation, you're going to slip in Jesus and you're going to make me want to believe something. <laughs> but, but he's earned my trust in this first section that I'm, I'm, I think I know where he's going and I'm going to trust him that he's going to lead me there safely. Yeah. I totally get that. So I really appreciate it, Janet, that Jana brought up what Brian talks about doubt deriving from the roots of duo or double. And what really connected with me is in a way that I hadn't experienced it before 
is that it seems like doubt has a relationship to dissonance, right? Cognitive dissonance, trying to hold two opposing irreconcilable thoughts at the same time. And your values on for both of those thoughts are so strong that it feels like it's ripping you apart. Like, like my sense of connection and meaning is based on the meaning that I attributed to my spiritual experiences. But then I studied this information and I recognized that my spiritual experiences that I attributed meaning to them that, that failed on me or in church history, perhaps um, it failed on the leaders of the church too. And trying to hold that at the same time and then leaning into that dissonance to the point that it eventually breaks, um, uh, relates to, it seems to be what he's describing at doubt. And that is why it ends up becoming so painful is because uh, that cognitive dissonance of leaning into the doubt um, threatens your identity and threatens competing core values that you have in your life. I like what Jana said though about when you're in it you're not you're not like oh here are my like competing paradigms and here's how I can kind of grow in complexity and put these together. I remember at the time feeling like I'm trying to hold on to this path and I can't and like I I literally can't but then like everybody else thinks that I'm crazy and everybody else thinks that if I just hold on a little longer, it'll work out. But I, And it just felt like I was trying to do something that I physically couldn't do. And again, like this language is really helpful in hindsight, but at the time it didn't feel like I'm just kind of, you know, trying to find more complexity for two paradigms. It was like, I'm splitting in half and I don't understand what's happening to me and I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. I, I think that's so important because, you know, it strikes me, Bill, as you, and thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm very moved by what you said about your excommunication and the, and the death of your mother. Um, part of why I think it can be, because you're not the only person I've talked to that has, has shared that, that this loss of identity and faith has been more poignant. And I think part of it is what you're talking about, Brittany. We don't even recognize exactly what's happening or why, you know, so many people that start to have these questions. Um, it, it's not like they have had a death that they can recognize that they can even get their mind around. Like, how do I process the grief of this thing? They're experiencing the grief and they're not even understanding where that's coming from or why, right? There's nothing you can put your finger on to understand why you're going through all of these and Brian lists, you know, all of these parts of the grief cycle that people tend to go through and gives examples of them of denial, anger, depression, bargaining, acceptance. People come into me going, what's wrong with me? I'm so angry. You know, where it, when you experience a physical death in your life, there's a little bit more of an understanding of why that is that we're moving through those stages. Brian mm. quotes, uh, in this chapter, at the beginning, he quotes Rachel Held Evans, where she says, no one really teaches you how to grieve the loss of your faith. And and I thought, what an amazing thing it would have been, been if my community included discussions about when people experience a loss of faith, the grief work of of processing that, right? And I, I think that lack comes from both sides of 
kind of the border there is that you don't get that in your faith community, but in the ex-faith community, you are, you know, become very critical. And then you jump into that group and it's like, hey, that's part of my identity, though. I have really positive memories there, or that's my wife still there, or whatever it is. Um, you cannot get that ability to sit and grieve and process um, from the faith side and sometimes also from from the other side of the coin that don't that does doesn't allow that either. There's sometimes that the reactionary side of kind of the ex fundamentalists uh, won't allow for that grief of of the identity that you loved that you lost. Right. At the end of the chapters, uh, Brian has a series of different questions that he labels reflection and action. And on this first chapter, with regard to doubt as loss. He suggests, consider starting a journal as you read this book and recording your answers to the reflection and action questions, and if possible, write a poem or a lament or a letter to yourself or even a prayer if you're able, uh, which in which you name and grieve the losses that you're experiencing through doubt. Take time to listen deeply to your soul and see what arises. Pay attention to your dreams in the coming days, because often we begin to face our doubts associated with losses, and we dra- dramatize them in our struggles and our dreams. I thought I thought that was helpful. I, I know that in trying to support other people that have been going through you know, the beginning stages of this, they hear me use what I, the words that I uh, ha- received from Lindsay Hansen Park that that faith crisis is grief work, um, and without realizing that there's, I need to do more to explain what that means. What is grief work? Uh, what are the steps that you do to process grief? How do you lean into the experience and recognize that those stages of grief are there for a reason? They help burn the ground to prepare it for new growth. And, and, and there's, a, there's work that you have to do if you're going to actually lean into this and process these things. I think that was a beautiful conclusion to that, to that chapter. Are we ready to go on here? So the next one is doubt and as loneliness. And the interesting thing is that when I asked each, all three of you about what doubt felt like or what faith crisis felt like, all three of you mentioned your relationships as like a main thing of why that was painful, a main thing of why you felt loss. And I remember being in that place where you kind of feel like you're in the Truman show and like, where are all my people helping me, you know, process this. And, you know, to his eternal credit, this guy right here, Bill real was the very, very first person in my life. Someone I met on the internet. We just started emailing back and forth over 10 years ago. He was the very first person in my life to say, you're not broken. You're growing. And to this day, it still touches my heart because he was the first one. Um, I expected people to go with me. I, I expected. I expected as I read and thought, and I because my system taught me that I, to, that truth seeking was a ideal, and it taught me that we value the truth no matter where it comes from. And, and so I expected as I was learning things that I just thought they just didn't know that soon as I start to raise any awareness of it, they're going to be on the vehicle with me and there's nobody there. And um, 
And then you realize immediately that not only do they not want to go on the journey with you, but they, as you said, I said it earlier, you guys, they distrust you. You're no longer us. You're now seeming to look like them. And then it gets worse because I was only doing what they taught me to do. And it felt like betrayal at its core that the the people who lead the system and the people who are following along, nobody wanted to take the time to put an arm around me and say, hey, this you're not crazy. Nobody said, hey, I'll read with you. I'll try to answer these questions. Nobody goes. And so you're all by yourself trying to figure out this really big thing. And uh, you don't have the tools to do it. Thanks, Bill. Um, there's a there's a quote uh, that often gets referred to that it's difficult to get a person to understand whatever when his or her whatever depends on his or her not understanding it, right? And it usually gets used to say it's difficult to understand something when your income relies on it, but. Uh, I think we can fill in the blanks and say it's difficult to get a person to understand faith crisis when their own sense of identity and ego depends on them not understanding it. Or it's difficult to get a person to understand the depth of grief of an identity crisis um, and feeling alienated or like being in a community where, where you no longer belong because you can't express yourself without being policed or ask questions or ask for support when that individual or collective ego or community and cohesiveness depends on them not understanding it. And, and it's just, it's an impossible position to be in, like Bill said, because we're trying to do what we always thought we were supposed to do, but it's very difficult to get people to understand it because it's just too threatening to them. Absolutely. And, and I, I get it when I was an all in believing member of the faith and I had people around me who started to diversify and have questions and, I, I think I've always been a compassionate enough person that I don't think I I was really trying to tell people they were wrong or or evil or whatever. But I will say there was something in my brain that just automatically assumed they were doing something wrong, that something had broken because my paradigm didn't allow for someone to have understood this and believed and then change their mind without there being something wrong with it. So I, I, I have compassion for that viewpoint. And it, it's what's so frustrating about this is because I wish I could just download to somebody that this isn't, that we're not broken. You know, some people will listen to maybe podcasts uh, people have done or I've done about stages of faith and start to get a wider view and go, oh, okay, maybe we don't have to vilify everyone who goes through this. But it is nearly impossible to try to get someone to understand that. Um, and so I've been on an apology tour. I don't know about anybody else ever since, you know, when my paradigm shifted, I went to a bunch of those people and said, man, I wish I had had more ability to be there for you in a way that I wasn't capable of. Uh, but 
you know, people just really don't know. And it's, it, I just find it tragic. I just think it is a real tragedy because it fuels this loneliness. Because when we have questions, we just really want it to be okay for us to have questions. That it is such a knee-jerk reaction to shut people down. And, and Brian has some great stories about that. It's not just us. People shut people down when this becomes, questions feel threatening. They just do. Yeah. And I think I also went on an apology tour for, for myself. Like I, there was a time where like, I wanted to talk to every friend about polygamy and not every friend really wanted to take that journey with me, but I really tried to force it on people. And like you say, all four of us have learned that you can't force paradigm shifts onto other people. Um, It's something that you kind of do in your own time and in your own way. But I was really forcing my friends to try to go there with me and it ended up damaging some of my relationships. And I had to kind of do an apology tour for that. So I'm ready to move on to doubt as crisis, unless anyone has a last thought. I'd just share one thing um, about my wife when I was deconstructing and wanting to process things, she felt like she was my person. So maybe I should be able to share those things with her. Um, but it ended up in wounding conversations frequently. And and then one day early on, she said, you know what? I know this is real for you. I know you're not making this up. And I know that you need to process and talk about these things, but it just can't be with me. I need to be your wife and I need you to go find people and places where you can receive the support, the community, the witnessing of what you're experiencing and process it with them so that you're not alone. And that, that's just, that was so helpful. Um, and I think it shows an amazing amount of maturity, emotional maturity and boundary, boundary expressing uh, from my wife. And it was very helpful at the beginning of her recognition of the loneliness and that I needed to go find a place. That's really beautiful that she was able to verbalize that. I feel like in in my marriage and probably the most of the marriages that I talked to, it just comes up as, as ego kind of identity fighting and it ends up in a worse place than that. So that's really beautiful that she was able to do that. Jenna? Yeah. Can I say one quick thing before we move on from this? One of the things that Brian talks about in this section is just the different parts of our brain and the way they work. I'm not going to go into an exhaustive part of that, but just to, to show that there's, there's this survival gut part of our brain. There's a part that needs connection. That's more like representative of the heart. And then there's our brain that makes sense of the doctrine and, and uh, you know, the symbols and the history and all and and the meaning. And I just want to just just uh, maybe name that so many of us in Western religion and certainly from the tradition we all come from, we do a lot of this from the head. It's about all we focus on. And the others are kind of there. They're part of our intrinsic experience. But, um, you know, faith is not, I like what Brian says, faith is not just the brain. It is not just an assessment of belief. It is not just, you know, which dogmas we're into. Um, some people are actually looked at in the in the system as well. You're, you know, they weren't ever really that into it because they were just into the social aspect of it. They just really loved the people. And I think how is that any less of an important part of faith? 
And I like that he presences that, especially for our, our group of people. Um, you know, our gut is part of this, our, our want for, for something better, our want for, for salvation, for, um, for being redeemed from the difficulty of this world. Like all of that is part of it. All of it is part of it. And we don't presence those other parts, I think, enough in a lot of our discussions about faith. We're just talking about the belief, the dogma, and what we do with this from our heads. Mm, So interesting. And I think it was also interesting that Bill and I on this podcast talk a lot about second half of life. We talk a lot about, you know, both of us have a friend and kind of tribe that is more authentic, more loving, more supportive than the one we left behind. And we'll talk really positively about a lot of things. But both him and I, when we dive into this, have emotions come up because it is like a, it is a death. It is a grief. And what we know about grief is we grow around it, but it never fully diminishes. And so that pain, you know, I can still tap into it. I can still remember it. I can still feel it. I can still have emotions with it because just like the grief of losing a child, you never just wake up one day and get over it. Um, We just grow around it. And so as positive as Bill and I can talk about second half of life, you know, both of us can still remember this place and we still feel it because it's still there. It's still a grief that's there. It's just part of our bodies now. (laughs) Okay. So moving on to doubt as crisis, and this was kind of a shorter chapter, and I just want to highlight one thing, and then I'll open it up to you guys. When enough conflicting desires wrestle within us, the faith crisis becomes an identity crisis. With so much to lose, we face the temptation to trade our way, our integrity and honesty for the security of belonging. If we do, our good faith decomposes into bad faith and we become stagnant and divided persons wearing masks and hiding secrets. And I know enough about my journey and the three of your journeys that there were definitely times, even months, where in order to walk into a space or to walk into our door, we checked our authenticity at the door so that we could come inside. And all four of us did that trade for a time until we made peace with it in one way or another. That doesn't mean always leaving, but um, until we could find some way to walk in through that door with some authenticity, there was a time where all four of us checked that at the door so that we could get some kind of security and belonging that we were craving. And so I just love that he, um, by labeling that and saying that it kind of reduces my own shame for the long periods of time where I felt like I checked my authenticity at the door because I was too afraid of what I was going to lose. And I know that the three of you have experienced that too. So thoughts. I remember thinking that if I read enough, if I listened to enough podcasts, if I spoke with enough apologists, I could find the answers to the problems. And then, and then when I expressed my concerns or doubts or my faith crisis to friends and family, I could do it and say, this happened to me, but I found the answers. So if it happens to you, I've got the answers. It'll just fix it, right? But the deeper that I went, the more unraveled it went. And and and, and I didn't find the answers that were satisfying in the apologetics. I didn't find the answers. And so eventually I couldn't do that inauthenticity uh, action of pretending that it was okay 
when it wasn't. Yeah, I, I've, I've rest, done this wrestle for a very long time, and I would say so many of my clients are in that wrestle of what do I choose? It feels like a no-win situation. I'm either giving up my authenticity or my belonging, right? And, and it's true. We, if we show up 100% authentic and say everything that is in our brains with everyone around us, which part of us wants to do because we want to bring people with us and because we don't want to feel like we're the only one and we want to explain ourselves to them because on some level, so many of us are still wrestling with, well, am I making the right decision? I don't know. I don't know. I still have questions. I still have doubts about what I'm doing. Um, it becomes really, really difficult. And there is some wisdom in not in, in checking some of that authenticity. It's not as if authenticity should trump our belonging. Like we, we really do have to balance them both. And we have to learn that we don't have to spill every thought to people who really can't hold where we're going. And sooner or later, we figure that out. We figure out who can hold it and who can't. And we do it in really clumsy ways. (laughs) And I think, Britt, yeah, there's a lot of shame that comes up with like, oh, how did I handle that? How, you know, the truth is none of us know how to handle this. No one has ever told us how to balance our belonging and our authenticity and to recognize how deeply important both of them are, right? I mean, I was a, I was, teaching at church. I was a teacher as I was going through this and I'm like, geez, how do I teach something authentic, but also not just blow this for everybody, this experience. They're not coming at church to be challenged. Most people, that's not what they're there for. I mean, I'd kind of get excited about a church like that, but that's not what, what the group is about. And, um, and it, it is, it's really difficult to walk that line um, and and the gift that comes from it is that I was able to focus on where do those places meet. They're actually we our brains are focusing on all the difference. Oh my gosh, they don't believe what I believe. Oh, this is so hard. I don't feel authentic. But there always is this place of authenticity that I help with my clients to find. Like I don't know, I still value a lot of the same things that I've always valued with you know, connection and goodness and service. And um, there's a lot where I can meet with the people who have different beliefs than I do. And it takes a long time for us to find that place where we can reconcile these two things, because that's, that's why this is a crisis, right? This is what Brian says. And he gives a great list of, of ways that we are fighting ourselves during this you know the, the the authenticity and belonging is one of them but it's like do i be honest or am i liked um I, do i want to be good or do i want to be thought of as good you know do i want to be consistent and reliable or do i want to i want to keep exploring and keep growing our brains are just not built to handle all of that all at once and it takes us time to be able to hold these in a both and kind of a way and find the ways that we can we can do both but oh it's just so painful. And, and nobody's willing to hold your hand through it. And uh, it, not until you find new people, right? You have to essentially go outside the tribe and find other authorities or other folks who are safe spaces to work that out. You, you mentioned that you have to let, like you, like you, well, you mentioned being clumsy about it. And I smiled because I think I was clumsier than you three all added together. 
And then you said, Jana, that you had to let some of these relationships, like you couldn't, you couldn't get your validation from some of them. But what I found was those were the ones I needed. Uh, they were the ones I cared, the people I cared the most about, right? Like, uh, it seemed like the people I really loved just didn't have the ability to sit with me. And and we talked in the beginning about, you know, you, you write somebody or you talk to somebody and you're just wanting them to go like, hey, you're not crazy. They, they think you're trying to rip them out from it. So right to their benefit, they see you doing something. But really deep inside, it was like, I just want you to sit with this and know why I have to go this direction. I just want you to see why I'm not. I'm not living up to the thing I promised to live up to because it no longer was what it claimed to be to me. I had no choice. My integrity forced me to go that direction. And I just want you to go, oh, I, I see. You still have integrity. I see that. And, and you don't get that. Um, there was a, and I'm going to run out of Kleenexes. So we got to move into these other two chapters where there's a little more positive, but there, there was an article I was reading uh, this morning. It said, crisis is both a time, I'm sorry, not, wrong one. Crisis is a state of feeling, an internal experience of confusion and anxiety to the degree that formerly successful coping mechanisms fail us and ineffective decisions and behaviors take their place. As a result, the person in crisis may feel confused, vulnerable, anxious, afraid, angry, guilty, hopeless, helpless. Perceptions are often altered and memory may be distorted. It was all of that on steroids. Um, my, my humanity was reason. My brain said this was the only option I had was to seek the reality of the truth inside my head and to follow it wherever it led, even if it led me outside of my tribe. And I just wanted somebody to sit with me and go, your humanity is reasonable and it's nowhere to be found in the moments you need it on the, on the front end of this process. And that's, I, that's the scariest part is taking that jump into the unknown because it's never going to be your tribe saying like, okay, we're going to go with you to this new and scary place. And we're going to um, validate your journey every step of the way. You know, we just, we just, it's almost like we can't even do that for each other. Not even that we won't, you know, we just really can't. And um, so that step into the unknown is something that I look back and say was the, one of the most Mormon things that I did. You know, it's one of the ways that I honor my ancestry is that I stepped into the unknown too in a different way, but I stepped into the unknown too. And that part is never not scary. It's just never not going to be not scary. Um if and I I've seen just, when, yeah, just ahead. last thing and then I'll be done. And in the sense of time, um, I really, this is just anecdotal data, but when you take someone who's like the very beginning of whispers of, of doubt and faith crisis, all the way through the entire journey where you can go back and kind of sit in a church building and be okay because you've processed that and you've done shadow work and you can meet them with their you know, their humanity and you can be there authentically. I've never seen anyone really do that in less than 10 years. That is a 10 year circle. <laughs> like I, 
it's it's a it's Are a you journey guys doing that <laughs> i can't yet <laughs> i've never heard anyone do it in in less than a decade like that it, it takes a lot of time to process all this stuff and it takes a lot of time as jana said a lot of this is in our bodies bill at towards the end of your you know sitting in church your body was screaming at you like i'm not okay yeah you had the shakes and um in order to do all of that processing through our bodies, that's just not, that's not going to ha- ever happen in two weeks, but that journey is still really valuable, even though it's going to take some time and just be patient with it. Jenna. Oh yeah. No, I I've known people where it's taken 20, 20, 30 years to get to that place. It, it, you're absolutely right. I just want to validate something that you said, Bill, if there's one thing that I could download to the consciousness of believers in the way that they see people who leave, it's something that I have found to be true without exception in my office, is that the very integrity and the values that they learned in their upbringing in the church are the very values and integrity that takes them out. And I think Brian lays a, a McLaren weaves a, a really great uh, foundation for that in this book, but it is so true. I, I, I I see it all the time, and I just really wish that believers could give that kind of dignity, you know, to people um, as they as they make these moves um, to be more authentic with themselves and their own integrity. I, I just want to say too, I wish I'd had this book when I was first kind of started off on this path, because as I heard him describe it, he nails it, and he's not in my system. And then I can realize, like, as I'm reading it now, it's it's so second nature. But in the moment, early on, it would have been understood that this is just a human process. And, and the way it starts off for you inside the tribe that you're in is you think it's just something that happens here. And you think you're the only one who's dealing with it because nobody else in your congregation or ward is doing that. And so you're so alone. And to have another voice describe it in a way that goes, oh, that happens over there. And he talks about his friend and it happens over there. Like suddenly you go like, oh, this is just a human thing that's happening. I wrote down some questions. Some are his and some are mine. Kind of the crisis questions. Uh, What would be left of me if I lost my faith? Like, who do you ask that question to? I mean, that's a crisis question. What would be my moral framework? Am I really a good person independent of my faith? Isn't our natural state to be evil, an enemy to God, constantly sinning, and we need God from the outside? Um, if, if the heavens close and I lose my faith, wasn't that my fault? don't I have a responsibility to fix it? You know, if I'm left alone, it had to have been something that I did. Um, And the refusal, those are the questions. The refusal to face these doubts and questions um, is what leads to the ongoing dissonance, the ongoing death of a thousand cuts, you know, the longer that it's drawn out. Absolutely. And, you know, and Bill mentioned, like, there's no one there to hold our hand. This is, this is one of the, those tragic things that I see too, is that I think there are people who want to, they really do. I, I, I think it's not an expression of their love or care for us. 
uh, but they truly don't know how to do it. And I think all of those questions that you just read, Anthony, they come up in a subconscious way for people and they fear what that would be, that they would have to face those questions themselves. Because to really empathize, we have to kind of go to a place in ourselves where we can validate where that other person is. And it's extremely hard to do if you haven't been there. Probably impossible. I don't know if there is someone who could really, in a satisfying way, hold your hand who has not gone through what you've gone through here. I've, I've experienced a lot of really open people. I've been, I've been gifted with a few people who are still believers and who really have been able to express their love to me. And they haven't been able to hold my hand exactly in the way someone who's been through it has. So it's just kind of one of those really hard things to um, to be able to see somebody's love, but also recognize that I, I actually need, there's a deep itch there to scratch that I can only find elsewhere. It's a really hard thing to hold. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for Doubt as Doorway? All right. So chapter four, Doubt as Doorway, moving on to these kind of opening, what what doubt opens up for us. And I'm just going to read the last few sentences of this chapter. For some of us, faith is a fortress of certainty. We will defend to the death. For others, faith is a prison to leave behind forever. Many of us linger at the threshold, afraid to move ahead, but unable to stay where we are. If we dare take a first step, we discover we discover that faith can be a road, a doorway out of the fortress prison of certainty and into the adventure of living before us lies the unknown, which is our life. And so I love this. Um, I don't use the, um, the word faith very often because it's very, um, you know, it's just got a lot of baggage, just like the word God does. It's just got a lot of baggage, but I love this shift. Um, I would use it if it meant this, (laughs) In, in general conversation, this sense of faith as openness, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about faith this week if, as we've been preparing, and I posted something, some thoughts on social media about how a lot of times the kind of faith that we see is the spiritual bypassing kind of faith, the thought ending cliches, the Jesus is coming next year and grandma's in heaven and whatever thought I can say so that I don't have to feel this, I don't have to feel this doubt, I don't have to feel this fear, I don't have to feel... I don't have to think about that. And it's that, um, it's that fortress of certainty. And so shifting that so that faith is actually walking into the unknown. And if faith is walking into the unknown, then the four of us are very faithful people because we've walked into the unknown many times. And so I love that shifting. I don't know if I would always use it in general conversation because I think that word gets very baggaged, but I really love that, that shift of that vocabulary into faith as, as openness and it reminds me, I don't quote scripture very often, but one of my favorite scriptures is in Exodus and it's, it's Exodus 20, 21. And it says, Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And like, what a big paradigm shift to think of faith as walking into the unknown rather than defending the fortress of certainty thoughts. I, I love it. Um, so many, so many of the words that we use in our faith tradition, uh, so many of the words that we use in our faith tradition come with loaded baggage and meaning. So faith means right belief and spiritual bypassing if there's any doubts or cognitive dissonance, right? Um, or a belief in 
something that you can't see that's true, but then then there's a lot of baggage on what does true mean, right? And so part of my experience of my faith crisis and my faith deconstruction was really putting in work to uncover the meaning of things, to uncover the meanings of scriptures, to uncover the meanings of my experiences, to uncover, I had to just wipe the slate clean. He uses an example of of uh, a series of Legos that build a big structure, and then one Lego falls, and the whole structure falls. Uh, or in my um, in my uh, faith crisis journey, my stake president said, "Imagine you spent your whole life building a beautiful thousand-piece puzzle that was prescribed to you, and it gave you certainty and meaning of life and connection. And then, through no fault of your own, your thousand-piece puzzle got thrown onto the floor, and it." it's laying on the floor in a pile of a thousand broken crumbled pieces. And what you're going to do now is you're going to pick up one piece at a time and you're going to look at it and you're going to sit with it and you're going to decide whether to put it down on the table and it'll be part of your new puzzle. Maybe you file it, maybe you trim the edges over time though. Some of the pieces you'll throw aside, but some of the pieces you'll keep on your table and you'll eventually build a new puzzle. That'll be a lot smaller and it'll be more meaningful because it's, yours. Um, when he shared that with me, I couldn't even pick up one piece. My depth of grief was so great. But that was the work over time. The The doorway uh, or the step was to step forward and to seek to deconstruct, which wasn't only dismantling and destruction, but to uncover meaning and then figure out what am I going to build with what's left of that is basically an act of faith or doubt as a doorway, right? Absolutely. I, I feel like we come from a society that really preferences truth above all other things without recognizing that there are, there, there are objective truths, there are subjective truths. Um, there's the way I see the world. There's the way I make meaning. Um, that you can sometimes relate to objective truth and sometimes not, but it seems to be kind of a thing that eclipses all other experience with faith. And um, like you said, Brittany, the the four of us have shown a lot of faith. And I, I truly say that I say that all the time. I feel like after things fell apart for me was the actually the first time in my life that I started to exercise faith in a way that was really robust and not just about affirming specific right belief. Um, I love that Brian says in the book, truths, uh, maybe truths aren't the destination. They're milestones. You know, there's something that is a guidepost along the way, but it is not the whole of experience. And the where we can turn this from such a, a, a painful experience or painful discussion that we've been having or a discussion about all of the pain with this and to shift it to some of the, the wonder and the beauty of this is that what opens up, Brian says it this way, is he felt like a spiritual grown-up. There is a beautiful wonder and centering in authenticity that happens when we dare to take those steps of faith. And one of the one of the ways he's, he talks about this is out he, he moved out of the fortress or prison of certainty, and I love these words, and into the adventure of living. 
And I love that, you know, he has, he has a book um, that he calls uh, we make the road by walking. And I've heard this, I've heard this, I don't know if he got it from a poet. There's a poet that says traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. There is something, yes, it's scary, but there's something very fulfilling and very exciting about also having this new paradigm open up to us. And as we move through the grief process and the pain, we can have access to more of this. And so I love this idea of a doorway and of having the faith to step through it and then to get just really curious and enjoy the parts of this that are also really satisfying and beautiful. You, you speak about that curiosity. I, I was thinking about Plato's cave and this idea that you're in something and it's all, you know, it's your entire reality and the voices that you trust to answer questions are inside your tribe and the books that you trust to give you answers are inside your tribe and the quotes and the scriptures are inside your tribe. And for me, that doorway, they're just early on. I just let myself see what was out there. And suddenly you start to realize that there is incredible wisdom outside of your tribe. And there are people who have life experienced and walked paths that would have been helpful to you your entire life. And here you are, you're a grown adult finding these voices for the first time. And some of them were gentle. I, I think if you mentioned Richard Rohr in terms of your training, Jana, Richard Rohr, Rohr at a time where you're trying to make your old system work and complete, completely letting go of everything seems like the scariest thing in the world. Richard Rohr was this kind of middle road voice who just kind of let me sort things out in, in the tribe I was in. And, and you see it from inside your tribe. You're told not to look at those things, read those things. You're not even given the idea that they exist. And another thing that happened too, talking about doorways, I, I used to always be so risk adverse. I never took any chances, super conservative. I just don't want anything to go wrong. And if I just show up, at the thing I'm supposed to go to today and work nine to five and go home and do it again tomorrow, everything will just be safe. And I learned really quickly on the front end of this, that whatever was going on and as traumatic as it was, I could sense that I was heading in a positive direction for me. And um, I started taking chances and every time I would extend myself a little bit, again, I'm a smart guy. I did it responsibly, but every time I extended myself, it worked out well. And I thought, oh, like you can take more risk than I was taught to take. And for the most part, things will go pretty well. And uh, I just started to sense like, oh, my inner intuition might even be better than that inside my tribe. And my my um, conscience about how to treat other humans might be better inside me than what my tribe tells me to do. And I just like, I just let that, it was a, such a slow ride, but every day was something new and something. I got curious and I learned new things and they all seemed to add to who I was. And I was deeply and still am deeply enjoying the journey that as a human being that I'm on. 
And it's so scary on the front end. You're so scared that wherever this ends up, you'll end up lost. Um, no, I, I found myself and, uh, I like, I like what happens in this process outside of all the, the grief and the angst and the, the trauma that comes in at the, the humanity that the, the person you become almost assuredly will be better than what you were. All right. Uh, Anthony, do you have a last thought? Yeah. I mean, the programming, uh, is that that's pride, right? You should avoid nourishing what's inside of you if it doesn't correspond with your tribe because you're being prideful if you do it. So it's scary to step in to nourishing the sense of connection or divinity or being that's within us when it's all, we've always been told that that's pride. Hmm. Okay, so the last chapter that we'll talk about and then we'll wrap up here is doubt as growth, which we've already been kind of hinting. And there was one sentence that stood out to me. It says, doubt, it turns out, is the passageway from each stage to the next. Without doubt, there can be Without doubt, there can be growth within a stage, but growth from one stage to another usually requires us to doubt the assumptions that give shape to our current stage. And so I was thinking about something Jana said about, you know, how this, how you progress and build more and more complex models. And when you look at science, you know, the, the truths that you have in kindergarten versus third grade versus sixth grade versus, you know, postdoctorate, um, like Jana said, it, the truths for each of those stages really change, sometimes even contradict each other. But we just all accept it because it's just a natural, that's how we naturally grow through science is that you have to learn that birds fly in in first grade so that you can kind of start to map out the world. And then you get a more complex map, which is that, you know, some birds fly and some birds don't. And then you get into like, you know, physics where like up is down and down is up and you can't even make sense of anything anymore because you, you just, you know, relearn everything. And so when you look at something like science or other areas of our life, we can see how that, how that just kind of goes naturally as we grow, as we learn, as we just get more and more complex, you know, models. And then for whatever reason in faith, we get something where we kind of stay with our first grade form of faith. And then we're an adult And then it's really going to crash because that was a lot of distance. That was a lot of catching up that you have to do in order to fit all of that complexity that you're getting from the world. And so rather than it being a natural progression, which is what he talks about, he talks about our growth as if there are rings on a tree. We move from simplicity to complexity to perplexity back to harmony. And we just keep doing that over and over. And just to accept it as just part of growth and part of a natural process. And once you look at it like that, you can kind of bring the fear level down a little bit the next time that you're in a place of perplexity, right? Because you just know that these are just natural occurrences that happen. And I didn't understand this until really a few years ago in therapy. I had a therapist, I was really stuck and I had a therapist, it was actually a spiritual director, Um, who was talking with me about how every time that model, whatever that faith model I was working on, whenever it crashed, I completely broke down. And he was trying to figure out like why 
why it was so crushing each time and why I couldn't have a little bit more of a natural progression with it. And we really dug into it. And it was because my first faith crisis was when I was 16 and the um, there was a pamphlet that came out that just had a bunch of rules and I just really rejected it eventually made some choices that led to me being kicked out of my home and I had lost everything, right? I had lost my family. I had lost, you know, my identity. I'd lost everything. And I was just a scared little girl in a big world all alone. And so until I processed, I had to go back to the grief stage and process that grief so that each time it happened, I wasn't a little scared girl again with like, you know, it didn't have to be a crisis like that over and over. I could find a natural rhythm with that. And I had to go back and kind of finish the grief stage in order for me to have a more natural process of, hey, this is a normal thing to just go from simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony, and you'll just grow like rings on a tree. And that feels a lot better than where I was before, where I hadn't processed some of that grief. And so I was really stuck in a crisis every time. It'd be like someone in fifth grade, like having a crisis every time there's, you know, a new science model because the old one has been deconstructed. Um, It seems silly, but that's kind of where I was at because I hadn't fully processed that first kind of grief stage in order to make that process more natural. Yeah, I will say these these staging models and this growth model was one of the first things that just helped me breathe this huge sigh of relief that what I was going through was not, uh, it wasn't just evidence of my not being good enough, right? Um, and I don't know, not many people know this about me because I probably don't talk about it very often, but I'm a huge science nerd. Like, I actually really do love truth. I watch shows on quantum mechanics all the time. Like I'm just super, super interested in the way that our world works. I, I love it. And so I get really excited at, you know, at the beginning of this chapter when Brian McLaren is saying, look, there is, uh, you know, neurobiological research into this. And there are, um, there are stages of growth that have been validated through actual research and he lists probably about 20 researchers that he has himself looked into and read. And this, uh, this four-stage model that he came up with um, just kind of came out of his research and observations of this world. And I, and I think it's a really great model. And I think it's also good for us to hold any of these models loosely. I, you know, one of the first things that people want to do when they hear a staging model is, where am I? Where am I in the staging model? And it's just not that simple. Like, there are pieces of me in probably every stage um, in different parts of my life, right? It's just not this, oh, I'm shifting from here and now I'm here, right? But they are also very useful. There's, there's a saying um, that only a mariner knows that the map is not the sea. You know, our lives really <laughs> are um, so much more robust than any of these models, but I love them. And I also love that he kind of, makes this statement that we kind of want to look at any kind of growth model and think it's a ladder. We want to make it into something, well, it's better as we get up the rungs. But the truth is, it's just different. We're dealing with different difficulties. Life is just hard no matter where we are. But I love these kinds of maps to at least name 
I think what it does, this is why I love Brene Brown. This is why I love Richard Rohr. One of their talents, and I think Brian McLaren has it too, is to make what is implicit in my life explicit. Like they say it out loud, what I've already experienced. And that's what I find in these staging models. I'm like, oh, thank you for naming that. Thank you for saying that thing that has been in my experience rattling around in my brain for so long. Um, so I'm excited to talk a little bit about his first couple of models that he touches on this, um, the per- first couple of stages of his model. Uh, but I, I, I just want to say that I love staging models. I think they're super helpful. And if you take Fowler, if you take this one, if you take first and second half of life, if you take, um, spiral dynamics, if you take any of these and lay them on top of each other, they all speak to very similar things, which should tell us something about our humanity. Just to hit on that, which is you said two things I think need to be reiterated, which is um, there are so many of them. Perry's scheme of cognitive development. You mentioned Fowler stages of faith. You've got uh, Ken Wilber's spiral dynamics. You you can just go and go. This guy, you know, the Brian McLaren's got uh, four stages. Um, Richard Rohr has two, the first half of life. And, the, and so you can start to go like, who's to know? Who's to know? There's, But as you pointed out, they're the same. They really are. And they're trying to make it easy to understand this spectrum of development from from binary thinking and and maybe even earlier than that, right? With you being egocentric as a baby and all you know is I need my diaper changed and I'm hungry and nobody else matters to to this time where you can incorporate everyone else and their needs and where they're at into where you're at. And, And so they're all trying to speak to the same truth. So don't get lost in the weeds to the folks who are listening. Don't get lost in the weeds. Find a model that appeals to you, use it, and then check out the others. And sooner or later, a different model will appeal to you more. And then the other thing you hit on too is I wish every person who's having a crisis of faith, who's starting to ask questions, if you'll spend the first three months not answering any of the questions of your religion, but reading these models of faith development, because it will give you the framework wherein you can make sense of the rest of it all the way through. It will it will come in handy every day your mind is on how to put this back together or how to deconstruct it and do something different. Right. And it's a tool and not a weapon because I've seen it used as both. It's, it's a tool to give language, to give objective language to our subjective experience. I think the, I think all four of us, the first time someone said, Oh, what you're feeling is called cognitive dissonance. It was like, what? There's a word for this. Like there's a word for this discomfort in my body. That's like so specific, but you didn't have like, there was years a long time where the four of us, this word that we use all the time, we didn't have that word, right? And so it's just giving word and structure to, as Jana says, like our subjective experience. Um, but, you know, all four of us has, have often seen these tools be tried to used as weapons where I'm in Fowler stage five and you're in stage three, therefore I'm better and I've been where you are, but you haven't been where I am. And um, we're just too... Uh, we're far too messy for that. Like for me, when I had to go back to process the first faith crisis I had at 16, um, that was going back to a piece of me that was still stuck in that stage, that was still stuck in that grief. And I find those little pieces in me all the time uh, because we're just too complex to be like, I'm five now and you're three, so you can't be in my cool club of nuanced whatever. And uh, yeah, we're just too too complex for that. I'm in one through five, so <laughs> 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 
depending on the moment, depending on who's stressing me out, depending on what my environment looks like. Exactly. Yeah, the, at the living school, I'll just say this quick thing. They they would say to us, part of the reason you're here is we saw in your application that you're having an experience that you don't understand and you need the teachers who can explain you to yourself. And I feel like that's what a lot of these things do for us. Yeah. So I would say uh, Brian's uh, first two, he says, if stage one is about dualism, dependence, deferral to authority and tribe, and stage two is about pragmatism and independence, uh, where we want to self-differentiate, we do that socially, like 12-year-olds, you know, start to differentiate from their parents, from their grandparents. But with regard to our faith, we, and different elements of our faith, we experience that differentiation at different times and different levels, uh, but sometimes it's more acute. Um, but I like what you're all saying. I, th- I think of, for example, the book, The Five Love Languages. Like, if you actually did research uh, about The Five Love Languages, you would find probably that it's just a conceptual framework that was not born out of research, but it just gave you an, a, a, a way to express how you experience intimacy and, and so forth. So it's just kind of a language. It's not actually something that like someone learns because they did a doctoral dissertation and a study on, on what people's primary love languages are kind of thing. So it's just a tool and these developmental stages are tools too, but they're extremely meaningful. All right. Anything else wrapping up here? So we're going to do two more episodes like this. We're going to do part two, which is all in doubt. Doubt is descent. Doubt is dissent. Doubt is love. The human problem, faith, beliefs, and revolutionary love. We're really going to dive in deeper into what those first steps into the unknown look like. And again, putting more words to that experience and more structure to that experience. So Hopefully, you know, we don't feel like we're dying every time we don't know something because every time you learn something that that shatters something that you used to think, you know, a little it's like a little death. It's like a little mini death so that something new can come to life. And then we'll also do a part three life after and with death or sorry, life after and with doubt, where we kind of talk about how to reframe doubt so that it's just a natural part of life um, instead of this thing that we like resist crisis, resist crisis, which I spent um, some time in that space too, uh, where we just kind of have a new, you know, a new relationship with doubt. But I'm excited to get into some of these models and some of these other spaces. And gosh, I just really loved this episode. I really loved that we could all um, tap into some of our emotions of being in these places. And I think that that was really meaningful and we don't always get to do that. So last thoughts and then we'll wrap up. So Jenna. Well, Britt, I'm just wondering if it's worth just tapping into those first two um, stages that he talks about, just simplicity and complexity and just a few words about what those are to set Go up. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Do, episodes. Yeah. Can you start um, that for us? Sure. So he, like we said, he has a four stage model and the first two stages are simplicity and complexity. And so I'll just briefly mention a couple of hallmarks of each of these stages. 
Um, and I think anyone who has spent time in religion and been raised in religion will um, understand, they will recognize some of this in their experience. Uh, but a couple of the things in the first one is, in simplicity is, is this, there's a lot of questions of uh, framing things as good or bad, as helpful or not helpful. There's a dualism in it. It's kind of lends itself to that black and white thinking um, that things are either good or bad, and we've got to define what that is and stay on the good side. And so we develop this kind of dualistic way of thinking. The second piece is that we um, we learn from the time that we're little that the big people know more than we do, and we start to trust them and give our authority over them to tell us how to live. And this simplicity stage is really all about um, authority and trusting authority and uh, deferring, if there's something that feels a little off to us, we typically in this stage just say, you know what, I'm just going to give this over to the people who know better than I do. Um, and then the other thing that we learn from this is that we notice that our authorities don't really always speak the best about other authorities of other groups, and we start to develop an us versus them way of seeing the world. So that's the, I think those are the highlights of how um, he he defines that simplicity stage. And I think sometimes that I sometimes will hear rhetoric from people who are in a no, more nuanced place uh, personally, but then they'll want to teach their kids starting with nuance. And we're just seeing research over and over and over about how the first thing you have to do is that there's good guys and bad guys. Like your first stories with kids are good guys and bad guys. And that not every person in the world is trying to like rape and murder you. Because if you start a kid, with, you know, all truth is subjective and all morality is relative and everyone's a bad guy and every, because everybody has that in them. And when you try to start them out there, they're just not there. It's just not how our brains work. It's just not how we, it's not how we grow. It's throwing a kid um, into a mall and walking away. Like it's too complex. They can't handle that. And so, um, the more research that we're seeing, especially as I talk to a lot of nuanced parents and follow some of the research as people are trying to figure out how to raise their kids if they've left religion. And um, it's just really interesting that as much as you want to like have your kids skip over to Fowler stage five or, you know, the, the Maslow's hierarchy, you want to skip to self-actualization. You really have to start with simplicity and some order and some structure and that it's really important that we start there before we have that kind of confidence to be able to take those steps into the unknown. Because if you skip that, it's going to be too scary to ever step into the unknown because things will just feel so anxious. Um, if you're, if you were never able to really get a handle on those stages. And so I think sometimes we undervalue those stages as really, really important. You make a good point. It's, it's the reason why we teach the boogeyman's under the bed or in the closet rather than there are real human beings in physical reality who do horrible things. It's the reason uh, all kids start off with stories about the abstract of bad being out there. And as you're pointing out, there is deep science behind uh, adding harm to somebody. If, if you approach it, wanting to give somebody the 25 year old version of the truth. And then we're kind of dismayed when that child goes off to college and joins a fundamentalist religion. <laughs> 
again, it turns out that Michael they, starts need, all over they again. need the structure again. They need the black and white. Like you gave them, you gave them this science model of atoms and they were, they never got that birds can, you know, birds fly and mammals do this and fish do this. Like if you never got that, then you're just going to have to go back and do that again, because that's just how our brains work. And to make that more of a natural thing in, instead of, um, you know, good and bad. And I'm more progressed than you. It's just a circle that we kind of keep doing over and over. And that gives me some more humanity instead of um, the way that I see some people use these models is, you know, to judge other people. It's, you know, you can use these models to deepen your humanity, to, to deepen your humanity that even though I may not believe like you, that feeling that you're feeling of fearing the unknown, hey, I feel that too. And I'm human in this with you too. And that gives me that compassion, even with people that I deeply disagree with. Absolutely. It's one of the number one questions I get in my office is about kids and how do we deal with this now, now that I'm feeling like I'm in a place where I am doing more of the self-actualization and, and, and I want my kids to have that at age 12, right? Um, we tend to parent from our stage and not to their stage. But one of the things that I think to help people to relax a little bit is that your kids will actually get kind of a free ride up to where you are if you are self-actualized and you are teaching to, to where they are, they will catch up because of your example, just because of what, the way you interact with them. So you don't have to worry about this too much. You do not have to have a PhD in this stuff to raise, raise good kids. There's like a litter, a little like, you know, inner critic mom that all moms have that just like took a breath. Just as you said that, like some part of me just took a deep breath as you were saying that. That was really, that was really nice. I'm going to sit with that for a little while. All right. Anything else? Well, does anyone want to talk about complexity? <laughs> you, well, you do it. You do a great job. So complexity is where I see a lot of apologists live is in complexity, right? Like they've started to notice that the simple narratives of black and white and us versus them, maybe they've broken down a little bit. They notice that life is not that simple, right? We need to have some differentiation. Um, you know, I, I do start to notice that I am a little bit more of an individual um, and, uh, and, I think it's important to note that when we're in complexity, we are still doing everything that we're doing in service of the narrative that was given us in simplicity. So we are doing complexity, but we're not really breaking out of those major paradigms that we started with. But we are getting quite sophisticated at having ways of explaining our experience. So uh, one of the things that I keep hearing and what Brian talks about in this stage is we get really gung-ho about achievement and, and getting better and getting really excited about the next stage and having a coach to help me get there. And um, so he talks a little bit about number one, we kind of, in stage one, we have the joy of being right. And in number two, we have the joy of being effective. So we get really mm. excited about someone telling us how to do things and doing it well and explaining things in more robust ways. So we get to be like, smart. 
Yeah, I like this sentence. It says, back in stage one, everything is known, but here in stage two, everything is learnable and doable. So if we can only find the right models, mentors, and coaches and master the right techniques, skills, and know-how, we can figure it out. And I feel like, Bill, your podcast that started a decade ago, it started here, which is like, this can still be good. It's just more complex than we thought it was. And if we can just figure it out, like it's still going to be good. (laughs) Like it's still in service of like, this is going to be okay. This kind of paradigm that we're working under. It's just, you know, it's just more complex than we thought it was. Um, And so that's really, do you have some thoughts that come up with that bill? Um. I've spent just like you guys. I don't. I don't know that I'm any different than you. I've spent a decade trying to figure out reality, and I'm still working hard at it. Uh, some of it hurts. Some of it's fun. Some of it's entertaining, and uh, I don't. I don't know what to add. Like, um, I feel like I could almost like map out where in your episodes it went from stage two where it's like, this is still good and right. This, this church, this framework, it's just more complex to when it went to stage three, where it's like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. I don't even know how to make sense of this. Like you could almost map where that happened in the podcast, which is one of the most beautiful, you know, ways that you show up in the world is that you modeled that in real time, right? That wasn't in hindsight that was happening. And that's why people so love your journey because they're able to kind of go through that process almost with you in real time. What people don't realize is what I've always been good at is compartmentalizing. So there were always two parts of me. There were always this part of me that just knew this thing didn't add up. And eventually I would have to admit it out loud. And then there was a part of me that goes, like Anthony said earlier, if I just keep reading and thinking and wrestling, sooner or later, I'll find the directions to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And there came a moment where the audience hears me out loud say, maybe this doesn't end well. And what they don't realize is that I probably was thinking that thought a year earlier, but I was too scared to say it. And, and I, and I'll, and I'll say this kind of as tying into that, you have a right to be as much of your authentic self as you want to be. And the world and all of these systems try to scare the hell out of you in doing it. But I find that most people feel lighter, more contentment and more peace and more ability to navigate all this stuff when they show up is the portion of their authentic self that they want to. I think that is true. And I will also say that there are some people that don't have the support systems that make that actually good for yeah. their well-being or their mental health. And so it, 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 it's both. It's a both and. Like, I don't know many people, Bill, who have gotten to the other side of this and not said what you say, right? Like, this, there, there's just so much that is more meaningful and better and true and real alignment on this side. And... There are a lot of people who are in that wrestle, and it's not that easy to discern when and where and how to to jump. Some people yeah. really do need to be at that threshold for. Thank you for the time. Yeah. Amen. Anthony, do you have anything that came up for you? Yeah, I mean, I witnessing your journeys and experiencing mine is just extremely validating because I experienced a lot of these same things. That's, that's the great thing is, you know, we, 
I I've shed some tears today, but I also just feel, you know, the connection that you feel like, yes, I'm sorry that you guys carry this pain like I do too, but it's like the pain in me recognizes the pain in you. And there's an intimacy with that, that, um, you just can't buy, you know, that's really beautiful. All right. So simplicity and complexity. And then next week we're going to move into really perplexity, which is like that first step into darkness where it's still dark and it's perplexity and really diving into that space. And then uh, our last episode will be kind of on harmony and how to bring this all together and how to have doubt be just a normal, natural part of your life that helps move you from stage to stage. So any last thoughts? Am I going to need more Kleenexes? Yes. I, I think we got through the worst of it. I think we got through okay. together. There's a lot of really bright, happy places and unicorns and rainbows ahead. But I man, we had to get through that grief stuff to get there. <laughs> man, you you three are amazing. I've I just uh, feel like it's it really is mana every time I sit down with you three, and I love it. Thank you. I feel this. All same. right. Thanks everybody for That's watching. Nice. We had a lot of people commenting, so uh, thank you everyone who participated, and uh, we'll see you next time. Awesome. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.